You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events to get free and periodic updates to this program and our other interesting programs. Be sure to enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right side of our website, whtt.org. And now, ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's podcast for WHTT Speaks Out, we're going to talk about Super Tuesday. And, of course, that's, we're looking at the presidential election here this year in November. And so we don't really like to delve into politics here at uh, WHDT, and we don't really want to take sides. And we're going to talk about the issue. Uh, is there something going on? Are people revolting to what's going on? We're seeing two different candidates, Trump on the Republican side and Sanders on the Democrat side, that are gaining support as a reaction to the establishment. And this was kind of evidence in a couple of articles that we'll reference here. And both of these articles, one out of Counterpunch, which is on the left side of the spectrum, if you will. The one from Counterpunch is entitled Reptilian Politics and American Leadership, the Party Debates, by Norman Pollack, and he talks about all the top four candidates, which would be Cruz and Trump and the Republicans and Sanders and Clinton and the Democrats. It's his contention that we get war with either party. And the other one is on the libertarian side from the American conservative and enduring domain for peace. And they're talking about antiwar.com, which is opposed wars from a, a libertarian viewpoint. And so what we've seen in the past 25 plus years is that we get wars, whether we have Republicans or Democrats, and just a review of that would be the first Gulf War in 1991 under George Herbert Walker Bush, and then that was sustained with no-fly zones, and and, uh, there was bombing under Bill Clinton's presidency in the 90s, the Bosnian War against Yugoslavia, and then George Bush with the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and we're fiddling around in Syria. And so we see this as a situation where we're getting perpetual war. And we hope that maybe what we're seeing here in these outsiders, if you will, in the persons of Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, that maybe people are getting upset and so we want to just talk about that just a little bit tonight. Chuck? Okay, well, uh, last week, of course, we talked about blessed are the peacemakers, and uh, we talked about Jesus' words, and uh, we discussed, and we hope that you all go back and listen to that little broadcast we did, because it fits right into this discussion we're having tonight. You know, I want to make a few uh, remarks about things I've recently heard pastors say, and people say in Christian churches that basically support the notion of war. And one of them is the story about Jesus and the whips. You know, Jesus supposedly took the whips and drove the money changers out of the temple. And I heard that brought up in a Sunday school class I was in recently as 
sort of a strong statement about, well, Jesus is not against violence. He's only against hurting innocent people. Another one that you hear often is that Jesus always was. Jesus was there in the beginning, part of the Godhead. In the beginning, he was there. It's, uh, the, the words are in Scripture. So then this is passed along to every act that took place before Moses on. And so when Joshua slaughtered everyone in Morsheba and the town of Ai in the Negev Desert, the statement is made, well, Jesus was there participating. So Jesus is not against violence because he's part of the Godhead. He was there right beside Joshua during the slaughter. And, of course, another one that we've all heard is Jesus said at one place when he was talking to one of his disciples, henceforth, there's going to be division over what I say and what, what I do, and, and you better plan on rough times, and we hope you have a sword. And one of his disciples said, well, should I go out and buy some more swords? And Jesus said, no, one is enough. So this is interpreted that Jesus is not against bloodshed. So these are kind of things that actually come from our churches. We hear them all the time. And they're used to kind of justify their political views of war. And so we don't want to forget that as we talk about these notions of politics. And as Tom pointed out, we are in a warring society. We're in a warring economy. The economy is dependent upon wars. And if there is a recession, there will be a huge underground drive for another bigger and better war, maybe even with somebody like Russia. We've talked about this many times. This is why, as Tom said, it's difficult to get excited about any candidate for presidency because, first of all, we don't know what they really think. Some of them are very good at hiding it. We can talk about these two articles that uh, Tom has mentioned as examples of people pointing this out. And not only do we not know what people really believe inside, but we also know that this powerful warring establishment is going to be there to press whoever is in office to accept the notion of a war, oh, uh, let's do this. Besides, it will be so good for the economy. And the Wall Street crowd is not above that. That This happens all the time. I'll punt this now. Okay. We'll uh, remind people of the term that Chuck came up with, the United States unelected supra-government. And so what we have is a large mechanism, supra meaning above, and so we've got all of these administrative, non-elected offices and agencies and bureaus, and we have a monster of a supra-government that's unelected, so you've got this momentum that is carrying us along, and is just, as Chuck pointed out, towards war which get things moving, if you will. They're not necessarily, for the long run, good for the economy. And what we're seeing now that the economy here in the U.S. is sagging. Its uh, job situation is not as good as what they're telling us. The statistics, we know that they fudge on those statistics. So there's a lot of things that we need to be aware of. And so, again, Hopefully, we're looking for some kind of movement that will bring about some awareness to what is going on, that we really do live in a war-based economy. And so we don't really see any of these candidates actively saying that we're going to stay out of wars. 
minding our own business. Does anybody see any hope in any of uh, any of the candidates or in any of the the things we're hearing about in the primaries or anything political? Is there is there anything happening that really gives us cause for optimism or hope that there isn't a movement foot? Well, I think maybe the hope, Chuck, is the fact that Sanders and Trump are here as not to be the establishment's favor. And so, you know, they're coming sort of out of the woods, you might say. And so they've caught people off guard. And it'll be interesting to see what happens as the election season continues and uh, who ultimately will be the winner. We don't know. But... If past is prologue, we can expect more wars unless something dramatic happens to prevent that. I think it's uh, really interesting to find out, like you said, is who is fighting uh, the, the, the candidates and the establishment that's fighting the Trumps and the Sanders. The Chamber of Commerce has um, kicked in, uh, I don't know how many millions of dollars, Carl Rove and company have kicked in uh, millions of dollars to, to defeat Trump and and here is a party front runner, and the establishment is fighting against them because they're they're just afraid because this is something they can't control. They have so much better uh, than everybody else; they can control them. And these Sanders and Trump are are true; they can't control. Or it sounds like it anyway. In the way of a movement, one thing that was announced today was that Bernie Sanders has raised forty million dollars in the month of January for his campaign on the internet with practically no staff, with very little says he does not accept any support from any major Wall Street funding or hedge funds or any of the common supporters of the Republican Party, and yet he's raised more money. Uh, I don't know if that's more than everybody else, but it's a stunning amount of money, $40 million in one month. In December, uh, he received $20 million, and the size of the contributions was very small. It came from literally millions of contributors. And I don't know what the number was as far as the average contribution, but it was nothing like the hundreds of thousands of dollars that Hillary Clinton and and the other major Republican candidates receive from the sources that now control Washington through their funding. So the fact that small people are spending small contributions in on websites is one sign. I think that's a sign you can't ignore. When we talk about the Christian vote, it's always interesting to me that we we're so quick to say, well, this person is pro-life, so we're going to support them, even though they cause the deaths of millions of people around the world through wars and sanctions and all those other things. That never seems to be part of the equation. And so maybe it's time for Christians to rethink what it, what it really means to be pro-life and pro-peace. Well, I think that's a great thing, Craig, that you mentioned there, and, uh, you know, we could be the start of that. You know, just pro-life means no wars, you know. there's we got to put that word out, you know, and get it more into the mainstream. That was behind one of our early signs, choose life, not war. And it kind of short circuits people. And the concept with some of these slogans is that they are there for people to think about. And so many evangelicals say that they are pro-life, but we see many evangelicals that are supporting these wars. And so we feel that there's something not consistent about that. And so we want people to think about these types of things. We've so sanitized these wars with euphemisms like collateral damage. And so we 
really take away the humanity and the suffering from a lot of these events, and we don't even think about those things. We're yep. seeing the uh, refugee situation in Syria, what dire consequence that is. Well, somewhere they proposed the concept of a just war. Yeah. And I fell into that when I was, before I understood all this. Oh, that's, well, it's justified. It needs to be done. When is a war ever just, you know? Well, that's exactly right. I guess if you were being attacked by someone and you were defending yourself. But, yes, I've heard the same thing by a professor that's written Christian textbooks, and he defended the Afghan and Iraq wars as being just wars on his interpretation of the Bible. Now, he was using the Old Testament as basically as his uh, guide and uh, doesn't bring uh, Jesus into it. But just as Chuck explained earlier about the concept of Christ being there earlier, and so he was a witness to all this, but we as followers of Christ understand that the things that occurred in the Old Testament were to bring about a Savior, Jesus Christ. So there were some things that were certainly objectionable, and we know that the sin nature of man does a lot of evil things. So Jesus brought forth a new paradigm, if you will, with his concepts of love your neighbor as yourself, even love your enemy, and blessed are the peacemakers, as we talked about more in depth last week. And that's where I think, Tom, we, we see so much in the, the, the Bible and how it's taught in from, from the seminaries and so forth. And that's where back to, we always come back to that Schofield Reference Bible and the whole notion that the Bible is this flat document that you can pick something out of Numbers or Joshua and something out of 1 Peter and say that it's equal. And it, it's not. It, the Bible is not a flat book. It's a progressive revelation where Jesus says, you know, you have heard it said, but I stand to you. Because the, what you have heard wasn't, wasn't the complete, wasn't the complete revelation, wasn't a complete understanding of my will for mankind. And so if you take a flat Bible, you can justify all kinds of things. Because you just pull, pull a verse out of, you know, destroying some, some tribe or people here and say, well, that's, that's okay because uh, what, the, what the Israelis are doing to the Palestinians, I mean, see, that was done before. So it's no big deal. And so it, it's that understanding of the scriptures that uh, I see as a foundation for how the Christians support uh, all these wars. Well, and of course, part of it is due to the uh, their end times belief. So that supporting these wars is what may result in the Battle of Armageddon. So you've got these types of beliefs that are held by millions of Christians, particularly Christian Zionists and dispensationalists. And so that would be another reason why they're not objecting to these wars because they're saying, well, this is God's will and, you know, we're getting ready for the end times type of thing. You know, Tom, I remember when Justin Romando and some of us were contemporaries some 15 years ago when we were kind of communicating back and forth and he just started a thing called antiwar.com, which is one of the articles that you're going to cite on this tape, I think. And this story, the Enduring Domain for Peace, is basically a tribute to Romando and his approach to peace. And, of course, he approaches the need for peace from a strictly secular point of view. He doesn't approach it from a Christian point of view at all. But he arrives at the same opinion that we do out of common decency. 
that, so that we, we almost always come down to the same conclusion. And that's one of our hopes is that people don't necessarily have to sit beside us in the pews of our church to come to the same conclusion we do if they resort back to the decency that mom and dad taught them at some place along the line. Our problem is so much the fact that our churches are not doing their part. Our churches should be doing ten times more than the secular organizations that are out there. Yeah. For every Justin Romando that has a little organization with eight people in it and a $500,000 a year budget, what he has, which he does a lot of good with, there are churches that have ten times that big a budget and could spend one or two percent of that amount on reaching out for peace and have a huge impact. Some of them have radio stations. A lot of them have access to people that are influential. And our churches are not only not doing their share, but they're actually uh, doing the work of Satan himself by standing silent and making excuses like the ones I pointed out earlier in the program. The little things that pop up that Jesus said that are construed to mean Jesus says it's okay to bomb Syria. Never mind how many Syrians are, are on the road trying to walk into Europe. And how many are not even alive? I think we've just given you some ideas to think about, ladies and gentlemen. We don't have certainly all the answers, but we will remind you once again, choose life, not war. And blessed be the peacemakers. And who would Jesus bomb? Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.